Well, we are going to finish up a series today called, What Would Jesus Undo? We've been looking at different spiritual sicknesses, is a good way to call them, that have infiltrated the lives of many of us who are Christians. Uh, these are attitudes, perspectives, and behaviors that Jesus did not intend to be a part of his followers, of his church. You know, the church is called the body of Christ. That means we are meant to be an extension of Jesus in this world. He has ascended to heaven. We are still here. We were meant to be his hands and feet in this world, in this day and age. And these things that we've been talking about prevent us from doing that. They prevent us from being effective in this mission that he's called us to do. Uh, in the first week, we talked about spiritual indifference. This is where we come to church, but then, you know, six days a week, eh, faith isn't really that big a deal. It's the thing that we might get around to if we think about it, but we typically don't even think about it. Uh, we talked about hollow worship, which is where we come into a church service, and our, our, our focus is not on God and honoring Him and glorifying Him. Our focus is on ourselves and whether or not we like the music or was the sermon funny enough. And when we focus on ourselves, it kills the meaning behind honoring and glorifying our God. Uh, last week, or excuse me, two weeks ago, we talked about hypocrisy. One of the biggest complaints leveled against Christians is that we have one face, one mask that we wear in church, and we're the nice church person, and we know all the churchy things, and we are very godly, and we're very heaven-bound, but then we leave here, and we're not very Christ-like at all. Now today, just to get right into it, we are going to be talking about spiritual pride. Jesus would undo our spiritual pride. Now, I, I've noticed that I tend to talk about pride a lot, and the reason is because I'm perfect and sinless and completely humble in every way, shape, and form. Obviously not, okay? Um, I, yeah. Uh, you know, that's one of the, if there's anything in the Bible that makes me doubt anything, it's the verse, and I believe it's in the, the first five books of the Bible that says, now, now Moses was more humble than any man who'd ever lived, and Moses supposedly wrote that. <laughs> so it's like, mm, is that true? Um, so obviously, I'm not the most humble person in the world, okay? My, my, the reason, my reasoning for coming back to pride over and over again is because I see how easy pride wants to slip into my own life, my own heart. I see how pride sneaks its way into the lives of Christians, and one of the things about pride that is, makes it so awful is that pride will use any tactic, any tactic to get into your life. It will use any opportunity afforded to it to grab a hold of your heart. Now, for our purposes this morning, um, we're going to define pride this way. The reason I say for our purposes this morning is because pride is such a big topic, and you can word this a couple different ways. But for today, we're going to say that pride is an obsession with your own self-worth. It's you being obsessed with how you look, how you feel about yourself, how awesome you are, how great you are. Uh, it's you being obsessed with you. And like I said, pride will take any any tactic to make you feel better about you. Um, and what's interesting about that, and one thing that makes it such a, a shapeshifter and a chameleon, is you can have behaviors that look completely opposite of one another that are both because of pride. Uh, for instance, pride can make you very braggy and arrogant. So always telling people how awesome you are, how you're better than them at certain things, and if they just came and asked you, then they would have got the right answer. It can make you very braggy because you want everybody to know how great you are. But pride can also lead you to be very self-deprecating. I'm no good. I can't do anything right. I'll never be as good as you. Because what you're really doing is you're fishing for compliments. So people go, no, you're awesome. You're great. Do you know how good you're at this? How good you are at all these things? You're so great. So that they can boast on you, boast on your behalf and puff you up. Both look so different, but they're both found rooted in pride. Another example is pride can lead you to be very stingy. 
I ain't giving my money away because the more money I have, the better I am. Or pride can lead you to be very generous, provided that somebody's looking at you while you're being generous. So that they can go, oh, you're so great. You're so, so kind, so spiritual. Look at you being so generous. And it's weird how pride can take these things that look completely the opposite of one another, and, and yet it's the same sick spiritual disease. And so that's one of the reasons why we talk about pride a lot here, because I figure if I talk about it enough in sermons, eventually maybe I'm going to hit all of the different ways that pride can look, and we'll be people who can kind of work to shake pride out of our lives. And when it comes to spiritual pride, it's just the same thing. It's when you're obsessed with your spiritual self-worth. And spiritual self-worth determines how righteous you are, how holy you are, how deserving of heaven, how, how you stand with God. It's you trying to convince yourself that you have a good, righteous, holy standing with your heavenly Father, that you deserve heaven. And when we try to convince ourselves of that, um, man, we will say a lot of things and do a lot of things that are not helpful in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about this, and it's one of, I think, the more shocking parables that Jesus tells. And I'm gonna, I'll just let you know, I'm going to read it, and none of you are going to be shocked, and I'll explain why. Uh, so if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to go ahead and just dive right in. We'll be in Luke chapter 18. If you brought your Bible, fantastic. If you didn't, there's black ones in the pew near you, so you can follow along. I'll do the verses on the screen, um, but I click through them, so it's hard to follow along or read back on something that I've said, unless you have a Bible in front of you. Uh, Luke chapter 18, starting at verses 9 and 10, and he's talking about spiritual pride and how he wants to remove it from our lives, and he also talks about or highlights the dangers of spiritual pride. Now, this is Jesus talking. He is Jesus. It says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were, they were, they were figuring out, trying to, trying to build up their own spiritual self worth by convincing themselves that they were holy and righteous and good and not sinful and dirty, and betraying of God's commands. So they were trusting themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. So then he starts the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Um, you know how when you watch a, a movie, you kind of instinctively pick out who the hero and who the villain is? Like you just kind of pick that stuff up? Um, that's what the listeners of Jesus would have done to a story as well. Jesus sets up two people, Pharisee and the tax collector. And um, Jewish stories, Jewish poetry was all about comparing. A lot of times there was a lot of comparisons between the right way and the wrong way. Okay? Just read the Proverbs and you get tons of that stuff. It's like, here's what a fool does, here's what a wise person does. Okay? So they were always instinctively looking. Who's the hero in this story? Who's the villain? Who's the example to follow and who's the example to steer clear of? All right? So they would have been looking for this stuff. And so, um, for those of us that have like read the Bible a few times or heard the sermons a few times, we know that when Jesus talked about Pharisees, or talked to Pharisees, he was pretty rough on the Pharisees, wasn't he? I mean, he never had a lot of good things to, to say about the Pharisees. And so, for those of us 21st century church people who have somewhat of an understanding of the New Testament, we immediately pick up Pharisees, the bad guy. And then, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus also showed um, the, fair, or the, the tax collectors a lot of grace. He, he would often eat with tax collectors, dine with tax collectors. Uh, one of, one of the, his own disciples was a former tax collector. And so we think, well, the tax collectors must not be that bad, okay? And so we think Pharisee, bad guy. Tax collector must be the good guy. But to the listeners that Jesus was telling this parable to, it was exactly the opposite. There was no one more holy in their eyes than a Pharisee. 
The Pharisee was the example that you were to follow of holiness. They were the ultimate rule followers. They looked to be the most godly people around. And to the tax collectors, they were vile, vile betrayers of their own people. Uh, the way the tax collector, why they were so hated, let me say that, um, you had um, the Israel that was kind of underneath the oppressive Roman government. And the Jewish people didn't like it. They wanted to be free. So they did not like the Romans controlling them and having this uh, authority over them. Well, the Romans charged taxes to these Jewish people. And some of the Jewish, Jewish people went to work for the Roman government as tax collectors. And so they were the ones that kind of jumped ship, betrayed their own people, worked for the evil, bad guy Roman government, and came to take the Jewish people's money. And even worse was that a lot of the tax collectors would add onto the tax bill over and above what the Romans were trying to collect, and then they just skim that money off the top, keep it for themselves, and get rich. So people hated tax collectors. You were a heartless monster if you were a tax collector. And so when these people read the story, um, they come in with an opposite perspective of many of us. Pharisees, the good guy. Tax collectors, the bad guy. Um, to them, this is them you know, being back in the 70s watching Star Wars, and they're 20 minutes in, and they already know that Luke Skywalker's going to win and Darth Vader's going to lose. They think they already know the direction the parable is going to go. But Jesus is going to flip the script on them. Let's go to verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, meaning he didn't even count himself worthy to get close to the temple. He, didn't even, he, he felt like he wasn't even worthy of God's presence. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. He was desperate, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. End of parable. And then Jesus explains it to him. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Justified means forgiven of your sins. Rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee, the bad guy got forgiven. The good guy did not because of spiritual pride. And Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So he flips the entire script. And to the people listening to Jesus, this would have been like a pick your jaw up off the floor moment. Okay, This was a some completely backwards experience for what they were expecting. They did not expect him to say that the church guy goes unforgiven and the family betraying crook gets forgiveness. That was not what they wanted to hear. And I tried to come up with examples that would help us understand how shocking this was, okay? And the, so these aren't great examples, okay? So just know that now. But, but just to help us understand how m weirdly mind-bending this parable would have been to the people listening to it was, um, instead of Pharisee, Think, sweet little old church lady. Every church has had or has a sweet little old church lady that has been in the church forever, that everybody knows and recognizes, who has made cookies for everything, has made dishes for every potluck, who has served in every possible ministry. Everybody knows them, everybody loves them, and everybody knows that if anybody's getting into heaven, it's a sweet little old church lady. Okay? Everybody has that. Every church has that. Okay? I've heard Otha McGinnis. I've heard um, Alberta DeVore. We've got our history of those sweet old church ladies. 
And so that, that's, that's kind of like who, people are like, well, of course they're going to be the hero of the story. Of course you can't tell me they're not going to be forgiven. This would have been a, a shocking statement of Jesus. And then when it comes to giving us an example of the tax collector, it's a little harder because it's got to be somebody that we have some sort of an emotional tie to. Somebody that when we just see them, hear their name, hear about that group of people, it just makes us angry. It makes our blood pressure tick up a few notches because we have a hard time showing them mercy or showing them any sort of grace. For some of you, it might be um, the local alcoholics who are always drinking and driving around town. Man, there are more beer cans in the ditches around Loami than I could ever possibly imagine. Um, and it makes you mad to think, who's doing that? That's so irresponsible. That's so dangerous. They're going to hurt themselves. Or even worse, they're going to hurt somebody I love. They're going to they're gonna do something one day because they think they're so good at it. They're going to hurt somebody I love. And it just makes you so angry anytime you think about who those people are. Um, maybe for some of you, it's um, people in the gay community. And you just can't stand this. It's not even, most, for most Christians, by the way, this is a big one. And it's not even a gay person or gay people. It's, the, it's just the gay people. Like, it's like the huge category that we get so angry anytime we see a gay character in a TV show. We hear uh, anything on the news about a pride parade. And we get angry because we think they're, they're disobeying God's commands. And at the same time, they're trying to get us to accept their way of doing things. And, and so a lot of Christians, this is that group of people that you just can't show any sort of mercy towards. Uh, for some of you, it might be the angry atheist at work. The guy who thinks religion is stupid, and you're stupid for believing it. That you must have no brain, no intelligence, if you were going to believe all this fairy tale nonsense that's in the Bible. And they make fun of you, and they make fun of religion, and they say sacrilegious things all the time, and it just gets under your skin, and you're sick of it, because you know you're not a moron, and you think he's the moron, and it just drives you mad. I don't know who that person, that group is for you, but we've all got a group or a person that just drives us nuts. That would be the equivalent of what's going on in this parable. The old sweet church lady doesn't get forgiveness, but the angry atheist that you work with did. People would have just been floored by this. It didn't make any sense to them. But Jesus is trying to shock us into thinking about where we stand spiritually. He wants to shock us and say, if the Pharisee, who everybody thought was guaranteed heaven, was not, then where do I stand with God? Because spiritual pride makes you, it convinces you that I'm fine. I don't have any need of any of this stuff. I don't have any needs to be forgiven. I am fine on my, myself. I'm a good rule-following person. It is a nasty, nasty thing. And so this parable was meant to kind of be a spiritual smack to the face to say, pay attention. Don't assume anything. Don't let pride convince you that you're better than anyone else. And there's two really powerful warnings that we can get from this parable. First one, when you're full of yourself, there's no room for God. When you are full of yourself, there is no room for God. And I'll tell you why. You look at the Pharisee. He started off by praying, God, I thank you. But when you listen to his prayer, it sounded a lot more like he was saying, God, you're welcome. God, you're welcome. I'm so good. I give. I'm so kind. I, I follow all the rules. God, you are welcome to have me on your Well, you're lucky, Jesus, that I'm on your team. You're lucky I'm on your team, God, because here I am. I do all the right things, and I'm not like all these nasty, horrible people who are worthless to you. I'm the good guy, and you, you are welcome. I am a gift to you, God, because I am here to do all the right things. And so he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. But what did he ask God for? Nothing. Why? 
He didn't need anything. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't need forgiveness. He didn't need grace. He didn't need mercy. He didn't need help. He didn't need, he didn't need God's help to get into heaven. By golly, he had earned it all himself. And when you think that you have attained some sort of spiritual high ground, some sort of uh, holy other plane, whatever you want to call it, when you think you have built yourself up to a place where you no longer are a dirty, rotten sinner in need of grace, you don't need God anymore because you're so full of yourself. And you've told yourself so often that you're so great, you're so much better, especially better than those other people, whoever they might be. Now the second thing, second warning that we see here, Spiritual pride means God's mission must go around you and not work through you. And what I mean by that is, as I said at the beginning, we're the church. We're we're meant to be the extension of Jesus in our world, the hands and feet of God in the world. We're meant to take salvation and this message of grace and hope to other people. But the second you get spiritual pride and you think, I'm better than those people, they don't deserve his grace because they're not good like me. You are no longer a conduit through which God's mission is flowing. You're a roadblock. You're no longer somebody who is going to take his mission out in the world. You're somebody who's going to sit there and go, I'm glad they're not here. I'm glad they're going to hell. And let me just say, I've, I've never heard anybody say, I'm glad whoever they are is going to hell. I've never heard a Christian say that. But man, I've heard Christians talk where their attitude was glad that person wasn't in church. I'm glad that evil person doesn't believe. I'm glad that they're going to get what they deserve one day. Rather than understanding that everybody spends eternity somewhere, either in the joy and perfection of heaven or the scary separation from God and eternal punishment in hell. And we're glad that they're going to go to that. That's what's wrong. And, and as the Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person or that person, the adulterers, the tax collectors. He shows us one of the, the key signs of spiritual pride, comparison. In fact, if you want to know if you have spiritual pride in your life, Just watch out for those times you start to compare yourself to other people, okay? Because what happens is you will start comparing their their areas of sin to your areas of righteousness because that's fair. You know, you'll look at the the ways they disobey God, and you'll compare it to all the ways that you're good. Well, I come to church, and I give money, and I serve, and I'm in a group, and I give my time, and I try to be, be nice to people. And you compare their sin, whether you think it's homosexuality, alcoholism, or whatever the whole host of other sins that exist, you compare their area of sin with your area of righteousness, and you think, they're not worth my time. Because their problem is not that they need Jesus. Their problem is they need to be like me. They need to clean themselves up. They need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and clean themselves off the way I did. And what this comparison does is it enables you to look at their sin and ignore your own. And the second you start to ignore your own sin, spiritual pride has room to grow. That's just fertilizing the ground for spiritual pride to grow in. And so how often do you look at somebody, a person, a group of people, and instead of thinking they're someone that Jesus told me to love and share his message of hope with, instead you think, them, You scoff and you think less of them. Um, It could be people in that gay community, and you scoff at them. You hate them. You hate when you see something on TV. You never think about their spiritual well-being. You never think of that. You never care if they're going to be in heaven or hell one day. You just think, they're evil, and I'm glad they're not here. I wish they'd go away. I wish they'd get off my TV. Maybe it's the deadbeat dad of that girl that your kids go to school with, and he doesn't seem to care a lick about his daughter, and you don't ever once think, 
what would it take to reach him for Christ? You just think, I would never treat my kids the way he treats his. Uh, maybe it's a, a big group of people. Maybe it's an entire generation. You know, the old millennials were the beating stick of culture and society right now, it feels like. And you think, lazy millennials, they don't want to get married. They don't want to get a job. They just want to sleep around and live in their dad's basement until they're 100 years old. What's their problem? And you don't stop and think, what would it take to reach a generation that, quite frankly, the church is losing? You don't think, what would it take to reach those people? You think, they're not as good as my generation. You see, there's all of these ways where we like to compare ourselves to other people, and we decide that these other groups, they're a problem, not a mission field. They're in our way. They're not a group of people that we should care about and hope to reach out to. And again, anytime you start to compare yourselves to other people, pride grows. And anytime you start to compare yourself to other people like that, you have no care, no desire to reach them for Christ. And let me tell you, it is easy, easy, easy to lift yourself up if you're pushing other people down. I mean, I, you, if you were ever a bully in high school, you learned that. I was a, not a physical bully, but I like to make fun of people. I, was a, I had a, a gift to spot people's areas of insecurity and then, you know, put that out for the whole world to see and make them feel small in the lunchroom. It made me feel great. It was easy to make myself feel great when you're pushing other people down. You put, point other people's attention to their faults so that people aren't looking at your own. That's how this thing worked. And so this Pharisee, he didn't see his sins any longer. He didn't see his struggles because he was too busy looking at other people's struggles. And once, and not once, does he ever say anything in the prayer about how to reach the tax collectors, how to, how to show grace to the adulterers, or anything like that. It's just those people, and I'm glad I'm not them. Now, I have a sinking feeling that spiritual pride is, going, is one of the chief sins that exist in church people that is keeping churches from reaching their communities. I wonder how many Christians sit in, their, in churches week in and week out and go, I wonder why my church isn't reaching people anymore, when they don't even want to know, let alone like the people that they're called to reach. It is such a nasty, nasty, purpose-killing spiritual disease, spiritual pride. But we serve a God who came to save the broken, who came to lead a way to heaven for those of us who have sinned, who have fallen short of God's glory. And then, before he left, he said, that work of mine, I'm giving to you. Take this message into every corner of the world. And you know what? They were in the, 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 when he first handed that mission off, he handed it to people who were in the middle of the Roman Empire. There are books upon books written about the debauchery and evil that existed in the Roman Empire. We think our country or our culture is going you know, to hell in a handbasket. We got nothing on Rome, man. I mean, it, is, it was a nasty, sin-celebrating place. I mean, that was like Mardi Gras all the time, all the time in Rome. It was, I mean, the things that were acceptable there would make the most liberal and immoral person in our culture go, oh, he can't do that, you know. But it was a nasty place, and Jesus said, Go. Take the mission out there. Get into this world and show them that I have more for this world than to letting people die in their sin. But instead, we want to sit here and look at people and say, I have Jesus, but you need to get your act together. We have a problem with that, though. We never got our act together. Did you get your act together? I didn't. I don't, I don't remember a day going, you know what, I'm pretty awful. 
maybe I should be a minister and try being holy for a change. I didn't, I didn't have that like existential experience. You know, here's the thing. I've been a Christian for almost 18 years now. If there is any difference in my life between now and then, if I'm any cleaner, any less sinful than I was 18 years ago, it is not because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps or white-knuckled my way to being disciplined and better. It's because Jesus broke sin's hold on my heart, and he put his spirit inside of me so that I would have supernatural power to move past the sins that I could not move past on my own. And the same is true of you. And that means that any credit for being less sinful than we used to be goes to Jesus. To sit here and brag about it is ludicrous. To stand up and say, I'm better than you because of things that I didn't do myself. I mean, that's like the rich kid bragging about being so rich even though it's all dad's money. He didn't earn it. He was given to him. My grace, or my, my, any sort of level of holiness that I have, it was given to me, excuse me. And so Jesus broke sin's hold on my heart. And so every time there's a victory in your life where, where you get past the sin, that's Jesus' victory, not yours. And when we are aware that we didn't do anything to, to deserve to be here, to deserve heaven, that there's no such thing as earning your righteousness like the Pharisee thought, you will learn that I don't maybe have the right to brag as much. And even worse, though, um, how many of you are done sinning? Show of hands. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I thought. At least that's what you're supposed to do. If you put your hand up, you're in, we got to talk. Um, but here's the thing. If you, you know, that's like, we, we brag as if we're all done. We've reached the finish line. Like, we're all cleaned up. We're not cleaned up. Like, we're all still a work in progress. Like, we, one day, Jesus will finish his work and make us perfect when we get to heaven. But right now, we still have sins that we deal with. Maybe we're not so deep in certain sins as we used to be, but we're still, there's still things we don't want people to see that's going on in our brain and in our hearts. I mean, we're not done yet. And so to brag like we can take credit for all this stuff and like we're perfect, it doesn't make any sense at all. Because it's not that we needed Jesus. It's that we still need Jesus every single day. So I, I've got a couple questions that I, I would encourage you to ask yourself. Again, I do this every now and then at the end of sermons. I don't know if anybody does this little homework assignment, but at least I know I gave some homework. You know, but these questions, they're not like revolutionary. You're not going to read them and go, I never thought of that. But these are just questions that if you take the time and let them rattle around in your brain, they can help you see, one, if you're, sp if you're suffering from spiritual pride, and maybe help you work through the root of it and find your way back to humility. Question number one, who would I be without Jesus? Okay, so for me, it's like, okay, I look back at 18-year-ago Anthony and the, how he treated people, and, you know, would I still be a jerk who, who was so insecure that I had to rail other people to make myself feel better? Would I still treat girls the way I treated girls? Um, would I still be an insecure mess who could only think about himself? Um, I, I do know one way I would be different. I wouldn't still be thinking about my hair. That's, that's done and gone. But, but for the most part, like, who would I be? All the things that are in my life, I have to give credit to Christ. He grabbed my heart started changing, me who I, changing who I was, led me to a place where I went to school to be a minister, met my wife there, have my kids here, found my job here, my friends are here. Everything in my life, where it is today, I owe to, I owe to Christ and what he's done in my life. Who would I be without Jesus? I don't even want to think about it. It'd be scary. Who would you be without Jesus? Number, number two, why do I find it so easy to hate that one group of people? Again, I don't know who your group is, but why is it so easy for you to hate that one group? Is it because you're looking for an excuse 
to make yourself feel better about your level of righteousness? Are you looking for a group that's easy for you to pick on them and say, oh, they're so sinful, at least I'm not those people. I'm, I mean, I'm not Jesus, but I'm not, I'm not as bad as they are. Is that why you find it so easy to hate a certain group, a certain demographic, because you think pointing out their sin is, it helps you ignore your own? And the last question is, what sins are in my life that I still need Jesus' help with? Because if you want to be humbled, nothing humbles you like realizing how you're, that you're still a mess. And I'm still a mess. A lot of us in this room are still a mess. Like I said, we're a work in progress. Most of us don't want people to know how much of a mess we are. I think we talked about that with hypocrisy. We, we're, most of us in the room, we're, we're, we put on an act every Sunday because we're scared that people would realize who we really are. We're scared of what people would think about us if they knew the kind of thoughts we really had or the things we'd actually done. So what kind of sins are in your life that you still need his help with? So if who you are without, who would you be without Jesus? Probably still the mess that you used to be. And what sins are still in your life? Well, there's still some and you still need him. Again, not your credit, it's his. Now again, I'm not saying those questions will eradicate uh, spiritual pride, but I do think they can help you unearth it and start getting into the the root of the, the issue and help you see reality. Because spiritual pride says, I'm clean, they're all dirty. Whoever they are, they're all dirty. I'm clean, I'm righteous, I'm holy, they're all dirty. Now the truth is kind of close to that. There is one who's clean and there's a lot of everybody else who's dirty. The only difference is that one person is who? Jesus. And everybody else is in that sinful, dirty category, you included. So the reality is not you on the pedestal, it's Jesus on the pedestal. And we need to see that. We need to understand that. We need to internalize it and let that sink into our hearts. I appreciated something Wayne Shaw said last week. He said, um, he didn't say it in here. He said it in a meeting on Saturday morning. He said, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to miss heaven by 12 inches because they know a lot of stuff up here and it never made it to their heart. And I think that's what spiritual pride is all about. Yeah, we know we're sinful. Yeah, we know this. We know that. But but, it, but we're, we're not letting our hearts understand the reality. We're too busy being comparing and judgmental to the people that we are called to reach. So Jesus came to save the lost. He came for this church to be uh, a hospital to the brokenhearted and the sinful. And we are his hands and feet. We have a world to reach. We cannot reach the world and complete the mission he's given us if we're too busy convincing ourselves that we don't need him and that he doesn't want them. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this mission that you have given us. We can't believe that you've invited us to, to carry on such a sacred duty as to reach the world that you love. And sometimes we are so intolerant of sins that we don't struggle with. We are intolerant of the sins that, that we don't have to fight against. But just because we don't fight against them doesn't mean that we don't have sins to fight against. And so I pray that we would look at ourselves, understand how sinful we are, understand how desperately we need the salvation that only comes through Christ, and that that would build into us compassion for a world that is struggling and in need of Jesus just the same. So break our hearts, soften our hearts toward the people that we hate, Soften our hearts toward the people that, that we grind our teeth at. Soften our hearts for the people that we struggle to want to show mercy to. Because you came for those people. You died for those people. 
And just like you died for us and our sins and our mess, you died for theirs. And not only soften our hearts for those people, but give us compassion for them. And let us avoid this dangerous thing of spiritual pride. Because the Pharisee left unjustified. And, and if we're not careful, if we, are, if we let this disease r- rule in our hearts, we're going to die unjustified. We're going to find ourselves not in need of you. We're going to think that, that we are perfect in and of ourselves, and we're going to stop seeking your grace and your mercy every single day. And I don't want to know what happens when we live that life here on earth and we one day have to stand before you. So help us be people who are humble in all things, spiritually humble and spiritually hungry for your grace and your wisdom and spiritually hungry for the mission that you've placed into our hands and that we take it seriously so that we would go out into this world and, and, and be people who, who deeply know how huge your grace is for the broken, how strong your grace is for those who are doing evil things. And if there's anything you've shown us through the people that you've chose to work through and the people you've chose to save in Scripture, there is no one who is too far from your grace. There is no one who is outside of your saving mercies. So let us understand those things and let us humbly move forward to live out this life of faith as the hands and feet of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.